You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Take your Bibles and turn to James, the book of James. Aren't you uh, thankful in the way that the Lord has blessed us um, and brought us Tanya and, and Monty? Monty and Tanya. I always call them Tanti and Manya. <laughs> uh, and just how the Lord has blessed the uh, praise and the worship in our in our fellowship uh, since the Lord has uh, sent them to us just now about three months, I guess, hadn't it been? And after all of that, you're, you know that Monty is not the meanest member of our church. <laughs> after me saying that, then you know that I'm not going to announce tonight that Monty is the meanest member of our church. And so your neck is still on the chopping block. Uh, it could possibly be you. James chapter 3, in just a few moments, we're going to read some verses together. But I, I told you that I was going to preach tonight about the meanest member of our church. And I saw when I said that this morning that some of you began to look around a little bit and uh, maybe even began to kind of look down a little bit. And you started, some of you probably be even thinking about some nominations that you'd like to make for the meanest member of our church. And I'm, I'm aware that probably a lot of you uh, could make some nominations and probably could make some very valid nominations for the meanest member of our church. I remember when I was a kid, and I don't tell these jokes anymore, and I don't listen to them anymore, but when I was a kid, I, I used to, we used to tell what we call cruelty jokes. Do you remember cruelty jokes? They can really get rank and they can really get cruel. I remember one of the cruelty jokes that we used to tell. I don't tell these jokes anymore, you understand? But, uh, but I remember one of the cruelty jokes that I used to tell when I was a kid is um, uh, the little, little boy is uh, running around in circles and says, Mommy, Mommy, I'm going in circles. And she says, Shut up or I'll nail your other foot to the floor. Now that person, if that person was a member of our church, could probably classify and probably be qualified to be called the meanest member of our church. I mean, we're talking mean, okay? Uh, nailing your foot to the floor, both feet to the floor, that's mean. And if that individual was a member of our church, then they probably could qual qualify to be the meanest member of our church. But I want to say to you that our meanest member is meaner even than that. The meanest member of our church is even more wicked, even more uh, uh, spiteful, even more destructive and vindictive even than that. Because the meanest member of our church, as most of you have probably already guessed, is not a person anyway. The meanest member of our church is the tongue. And James really spends a lot of time in his little letter, and particularly in the third chapter, talking about the tongue. And the tongue, that little thing that wags in the mouth of each and every one of us, is in fact the meanest member of our church. He is so vindictive. He is so powerful. He is so spiteful. He has more power. He has more perversion than any other person on the face of the earth. The tongue is the meanest member of our church. And so in these chapters, in this chapter, in chapter 3, in, in the first uh, 12 verses, James deals with this thing of the tongue. And it's not a, a fun subject to deal with by any means. And it's, for most of us, not a real easy subject to deal with because we all 
fall prey to the wiles of the tongue at one time or another. And so this really kind of comes home and, and roosts on every one of our front doorsteps, this particular passage of Scripture tonight. And if we look at this thing, though, and we think about the meanest member of our church, I want us to divide it up into three sections, as James does, and deal with three things, primary, primarily three things that James says about the tongue and the control of the tongue. Now, I'm not going to read at the outset all 12 verses, but we're going to read them as we walk through them together, point by point. First of all, James deals in chapter 3 with the power of the tongue, with the power of the tongue. Now, notice with me as we read the first five verses. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Now, that verse needs to be dealt with by itself at another time, and so I'll just leave it tonight and not deal with it. But the context in which he says it is very important. But then he goes on in verse 2, and he says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, then we would direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And in these verses of Scripture, James gives us, first of all, a picture and an inclination about, of the tongue. He speaks about the power of the tongue, and he says that the tongue is so small, it is so small in comparison to the total mass of the body, yet it is tremendous in its power in comparison to its size. And in order to drive his point home, James illustrates it by making three comparisons. He compares the tongue in three different ways. And as we studied the book of James on Sunday evenings, I hope that you've become aware, and if you have not yet, you will before we finish the study, that James is a master illustrator. As he writes, he illustrates virtually every spiritual truth that he teaches. He follows quite a bit the teaching method and the teaching pattern of the Lord Jesus, and that's not surprising because they grew up in the same home. They grew up in the same family. He was the half-brother of Jesus. But James is a master illustrator, and so when he gives a spiritual truth, then he always illustrates it, and he brings it right down to the practical level of living life where you and I can understand it. And so to illustrate the tremendous and the awesome power of the tongue, James makes three comparisons, and the first comparison he makes is in verse 3. And he compares the tongue to a bit that is put into a horse's mouth. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to ride a horse without a bit in its mouth? Some of you said, I've tried to ride a horse with a bit in its mouth and wasn't very successful. But have you ever tried to ride a horse without a bit in its mouth? It wasn't very long until you found out that you were no match for that horse. I mean, there you were perched on top of that horse, anywhere from 100 to 200 pounds of you sitting on top of that horse. That takes in most of us. And you were sitting on top of that horse that weighed maybe 8, 900, 1,200, 13, 1,400 pounds without a, a bit in that horse's mouth. And that horse basically did what he wanted to do. You had no power or no authority over that horse. You can kick that horse. You can bite him. You can slap him. You can grab his ear. You ever seen anybody grab a horse's ear? Man, that just burns them up. That just makes them mad. That doesn't do any good at all. You can do all of those things, and all that you'll end up doing is making that horse angry, and then you're in for a long day. <laughs> you're in for a long ride when you get that horse mad at you. But all you've got to do 
All that you have to do is put a small piece of metal, the bit, into the horse's mouth, and he's yours. Put the bit in the horse's mouth, and he completely and totally is submissive to your wants and your desires. You're trucking along there, and even if you don't know how to ride a horse, if you've got a bit and a bridle, then you can ride along. You want that horse to stop, you just pull, a pull back on that, that bit, and that horse stops. If you want to go to the left, then you just pull to the left with that rein, and that bit pulls in that horse's mouth, and he goes to the left. If you want to go to the right, then you just pull to the right, and that horse will go to the right. Just by putting a little piece of metal into the, horse, the, the mouth of that horse, then he comes completely into submission to your will and your desires. And with that small bit, you bring the entire body of that horse into submission to what you want him to do and where you want him to go. Now, James makes that analogy, and he says the tongue is exactly like that. He says that is the character of the tongue. It brings into submission the entire body. It is like a bit in the horse's mouth, and that tongue that lives in our mouth brings the entire body of man into complete and total submission. And so like the bit that's put in the horse's mouth, if you have... You, if you have the ability to control the tongue, then you have the ability, he says, to control your entire life. And so he makes the comparison of the tongue being like the bit that's put into the horse's mouth, and it brings that horse under submission, and so does the tongue bring the entire body under submission of itself. And he says, if you can control the tongue, then he says, then you can control the entire body. But then he goes on in verse 4, and he gives his second comparison, second analogy, and he says that the tongue is like the rudder on a ship. And he compares the, the rudder of a ship, of a great ocean liner, if you will, uh, to the tongue. The rudder on a ship is so small in comparison to the mass and the weight and the size of that great ship. But it's able to direct even the direction of great ocean liners. And when I lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida for three years pastoring there, I had the privilege of doing some things because I lived there that many people just dream all of their lives about doing. And one of those was having the opportunity to, uh, to, to go over to the Bahamas, which was just a very short trip across from Fort Lauderdale. And a friend of mine had a boat. And, and we used to make a regular practice of uh, just skipping over to the Bahamas about 55 miles to the little islands of Bimini, little fishing islands, out islands off of the main islands of the, uh, the, uh, the Bahamas. And uh, we'd stay on the boat for a couple of days. But we always scuba dive. We spent most of our time scuba diving. And right there, just off of one of the islands in Bimini, is a, is a giant ship that had been sunk. It was sunk about the, around the World War II era. It was a giant concrete ship. Have you ever heard of a concrete ship? This is a, a humongous concrete ship. It was made of concrete. They used to make a lot of ships uh, years ago out of concrete. They don't do so anymore. But this was one of those, and it was sunk around the World War II era. And during World War II, uh, the American fighter planes would use it for, for bombing practice and for diving practice. And so there are giant holes in the side of this, this ship all over the place. But it's one of the favorite places to dive because around that ship, all of the schools of tropical fish stay and there's lots of algae growing on the, on the ship. And so there are a lot of neat things to see and you can swim through an entire school of fish swimming around that. I remember the first time that I ever died on that ship going it was an awesome experience uh, just swimming through the holes in that ship and swimming from one side to the other side and you go into the dark and almost can't see and all you could see was a little hole of light on the other side and you swim toward that hole of light wondering if there was a barracuda or a shark or something beneath you or above you or below you or to the right or the left or something trying to get through it as quick as you can and swimming all the way around the ship 
on the very back end of the ship, though, still intact after all of the bombing and, and everything that that ship had gone through in target practice, is the propeller. The propeller is still there. It is 24 feet from tip to tip. This giant propeller on the back of this, this great concrete ship that is 24 feet from tip to tip. It took that, ma that massive propeller to push that much weight of that concrete ship through the water. But just in front of that 24-foot propeller is the small little rudder that's also intact. And that rudder on that ship is only about two feet wide. And with that small little rudder in front of that 24-foot propeller, that little bitty rudder, that captain of that ship or that pilot of that ship was able to direct the, the direction of that ship with just the twist of a finger on the wheel. And James uses that kind of analogy and he says that the tongue is like the rudder on a, sh on a ship. It is a very small thing, but it has tremendous power to direct and to move and to make something change directions and go in another way. The tongue has power to change the course of life. That's what James is saying. It has the power to change the very direction of a person's life. When I was in high school, there was a kid that was a troublemaker all through school, you know, you had troublemakers in your school. Some of you were one. And this kid was a real troublemaker in school. He was such a troublemaker that he couldn't get along with the teachers. Kept getting in fights with teachers and quitting school and throwing spitwads at people and throwing darts and putting tacks in people's chairs. You know, all the, the wild and crazy and stupid things that, uh, that imbeciles do. Well, this kid had a real problem with an attitude problem and, and was always getting in trouble with the teachers. And he came to his junior year, and by his junior year, had had every math teacher in that high school and had still not passed one year of math. Still not passed one year of math going into his junior year. This was the scenario that would always happen. He'd get into class and start smarting off, start cutting up and, and skipping school and and wind up getting in a fight with the teacher and getting kicked out of the class, and they'd transfer him into another class, and he'd get in a fight with that teacher, and so the teacher would give up, and the principal would give up, and he'd spend the rest of the year in the principal's office and lose that credit for math that year. Next year, he'd come around, and it'd be time to put him back in class, and so he'd go back into math class and start over with the freshman this time, and now he's a sophomore, and get in a fight with teachers again and get transferred to another class and get in a fight with that teacher and get booted out on his ear and spend the rest of the year in the principal's office, two years of losing credits. At the very beginning of his junior year, uh, sure enough, the true to form, got in a fight with the teacher the first week in school and got booted out and was transferred to another math teacher's class. And now she had been warned that he was coming before he ever got there. Principal had said, I'm going to give you this kid and see what you can do with him. So she met him at the door and she said to him these words. She said, if you could not get along with all of those other teachers, you certainly can't get along with me. And she was a prophet. She was a prophet. He didn't get along one bit. That relationship lasted about two days, and there he was. He was out on his ear again, kicked out of class. There was one teacher, one math teacher in that entire high school that this kid had not yet had for algebra. He'd stayed in algebra all, all these three, three years. Her name was Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones was a Christian, a very dedicated, a very committed Christian woman. She spoke with firmness, Yet she spoke with kindness to this kid and began to encourage him. And by the end of that year, by the end of his junior year in an Algebra one class with a class full of freshmen, by the end of his junior year, that kid was making A's in Algebra. Have you guessed who that kid was yet? It was me. It was me. I was that kid. 
I had dropped out of school twice by the time I was a junior in high school. I had gone through every math teacher in my high school by the time that I was in the middle of my junior year and the Lord directing my life and his sovereign purpose and his sovereign will brought me finally to Mrs. Jones, the last math teacher in my high school who was a Christian and with her words, all it took was a word, all it took was a word, with her words she began to encourage me, she began to lift me up and I began to want to study for her. I didn't study for anybody else that year, but I studied algebra, and I began to make A's in algebra. James uses that kind of analogy of the power of the tongue. You see, with, with your tongue, you have the power to direct a life, a great power to direct the lives of people around you just by the words that you speak, by the demeanor that you put forth to those individuals. You have the power to change and direct lives. And when I got saved the next year, my senior year in high school. I still wasn't saved at this time, but when I got saved my senior year in high school, do you know who the first person I went to in my high school was to tell about my conversion experience? It was Mrs. Jones. Because you see, God had used that woman in a very indirect way, in a very roundabout way to begin to prepare me for that time when he would confront me with the gospel of Jesus Christ and I would come to know him. And when I got saved, I looked back and I knew that God's hand had been in dealing with me even as a junior in high school in a stupid Algebra one class with Mrs. Jones as my teacher. Because you see, with her words, she began to change the course and the direction of a life. And she played a very vital and important part in my becoming a child of God when I was a senior in high school. And so James talks about the power of the tongue, tremendous power that we have with our tongue. It's like the bit in a horse's mouth. It's like the rudder of a giant ship. So small it is, but it has the power to change the direction of that great ocean liner. And then James goes on in verse 5 and gives his third analogy. And he says that the tongue in verse 5 is like a fire, is like a spark, he says, that sits on fire an entire forest. Just with a spark, he says, it's like that it sits on fire an entire forest. Small, small, yet so destructive. You see, the tongue can be used to redirect a life, but that same tongue can also be used to wreck a life. Just like fire, a small spark of fire is all that it takes to set an entire forest aflame. Just a small little rudder on a small little ship that has the ability and the power to redirect the direction of that ship. The tongue that you and I have can be used to direct a life or to destroy a life. And in this illustration, James is talking about the destructive power of the tongue. It's like fire. It just pops from building to building to building to building and sets up a chain reaction and destroys in 1871, Miss O'Leary was milking her cow in Chicago. And as she was milking the cow, the cow kicked over the lantern. And the lantern turned over in the hay. And the hay began to burn in Miss O'Leary's barn. And, and the fire got out of control quickly where she was not able to put that fire out. And then it spread from her barn to the house next door and the house next door and the house next door. And when that fire had ended, it had become the great fire of Chicago. And in that fire, which was in the life and times of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, in that fire, 17,450 buildings in Chicago were devastated, were gutted, were burned. 17,450 uh, buildings were burned to the ground in that fire, and over 200 people lost their lives. 
And James says that tongue that is so small, that has such a small beginning, is like that. The tongue is like a fire. It can destroy, it can destroy lives. Now, as you and I go through our day, we have this thing in our mouths <laughs> that is so powerful, that is so destructive. And as you go through your day, you can go through your day setting fires. Set a little fire here. Set a little fire here. Set a little fire there. Set a little fire over there. And those little fires grow into becoming big fires, and they destroy individuals' lives and relationships. James says, such is the power of the tongue. And your words set up a chain reaction like Miss O'Leary's cow kicking over the, the lantern. It starts small and it grows and it hops from one building to the next building to the next building. Your words start small and they grow and they go from one life to another life to another life to another life until lots of lives are devastated by the power of the tongue. I read a cartoon several years ago that impressed me and I kept it. And the cartoon started off like this. A fellow was at work, an employee was at work and the employer got ticked off at him, and so he just reamed him out. He just read him the right act and just chewed him up one side and down the other for some small, small little thing that had happened in the office, and that just ticked the employee off. Just really made him mad, like, who in the world does he think he is? So he goes back to his office and walks into his secretary's office, and he just chews her out for some little thing that she had not done that he had told her to do. And he began to chew on her, and after he walked out, she said, who in the world does he think he is? And she just got all ticked off, and it just ruined her whole day. And so she went home that night, and her husband walked in, and he hadn't mowed the grass like he'd said he was going to, and she just jumped on him with both hands and both feet. And after about 15 minutes later, a good severe tongue lashing, she let him go, and he was ticked off. What in the world is wrong with her? Where did she get off yelling and screaming at me like that? About that time, the teenage son walked in from football practice an hour and a half late after football practice was already over with, and his dad just chewed him up one side and down the other. What are you doing running around all over town? We've told you to come home right after school, right after football is over with. Where have you been? What are you doing? And that ticked the, the teenage boy off, obviously. And so he hits the back door at a dead run, and he's about three-quarters of the way down the steps, and the family dog comes traipsing right across the steps, and you guessed it. He rears back and he planted one on that dog and just lifted him about six feet off the ground and halfway across the yard. The dog never knew what hit him, but it made him mad. And he ran around to the front of the house and the postman was late delivering the mail that day and he bit the postman right on the rear end and the chain and the cycle just continued. It just went from one house to the next house. It went from one person to the next person. You see, that's what James says the power of the tongue entails. It is a destructive power and it sets up a chain reaction it has the power to direct a life, but it also, he says, has the power to destroy. And so the tongue is like a, a bit in a horse's mouth. It's like the rudder of a giant ship. It's like a small spark that sets an entire forest aflame. And then in verses 6 through 8, James deals with not only the power of the tongue, but the perversion of the tongue. And he says this tongue is a very perverted instrument. Look at verses 6 through 8. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. For every species of beast and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Now look again what he says in verse 6. 
He says, it is set among our members and defiles the entire body. And then in verse 8, he says, it is a restful, restless evil and it is full of deadly poison. What a picture of the tongue. Can you believe you even keep that thing in your mouth? <laughs> That's the perverted nature, James says, of the tongue. It is filthy. It defiles, he says, the entire body of man. To use a descriptive illustration is like an open sewer that pours into a river and as it pours into that river it defiles the entire river we live close to a river like that don't we the trinity and as it pours into the river it literally defiles the entire river james says the tongue is like that why is it that way why does it defile the entire body james says it because of this because when you use your tongue like that when you use your tongue to curse to slander to gossip then he says, your tongue is being set on fire by hell itself. Look at it. He says it in verse 6. That the tongue is set on fire by the very fires of hell itself. In other words, the evil one is behind that kind of speech. The evil one is always behind slander. He is always behind gossip. He is always behind cursing. He is always the author and the finisher of that kind of use of the tongue. And so James says that the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. And everything that the evil one touches, he defiles. And so the tongue, as it is inspired by hell itself, defiles, he says, the entire body. I heard of a lady years ago that walked into a print shop and inadvertently leaned up against a fresh piece of print that had just come off of the press and was still wet and she leaned her backside up against the print and when she came off of it the words were printed in bold letters daily news she went through the day that day people were snickering and snorting in her behind her back as she'd walk by people would whisper to one another and they'd kind of giggle and they'd kind of laugh and she went through the whole day like that wondering what was going on and finally when she got home and her husband came home from work that evening she said honey would you look at the back of my dress and tell me is there something back there that doesn't belong there and the husband turned around and looked and he said no there's nothing there that doesn't belong there the daily news gossip slander cursing all of these things the apostle says are set on fire by hell itself and the tongue is able to defile the entire body. Have you ever just gotten through really just slandering someone behind their back or, or gossiping or something like that and walked away from that just feeling unclean? Just feeling defiled? James says that's what the tongue does because it's set on fire by hell. And the evil one defiles everything that he touches. And it just defiles the entire body. It defiles the entire nature of man. And he goes on in verse 7. And then he talks about the wild and the rebellious nature of this tongue. He says, every creature, every single creature is able to be tamed by man. Man has, has achieved the ability to, to subdue every creature on the face of the earth, but not the tongue. He says, not the tongue. The tongue cannot be subdued by man. You see, in the garden, man was given dominion over creation. But in the fall, lost man man lost control of himself he was given dominion over all of creation but in the fall he lost control of himself and so now man can subdue any animal a lion in a ring you ever thought about that how uh, a, a guy a, a little wimpy guy in a circus ring can subdue uh, a six or seven hundred uh, bengal tiger or lion 
and that lion do exactly what he wants to as he pokes at him with that stick and, and with, that, with that chair? Have you ever been down to Miami Sea Aquarium or one of those places with one of those giant whales and they reach up and kiss people on the lips? A man's able to subdue and to tame any animal, but James says, not the tongue. That is one animal that man is not able to subdue. So rebellious is the nature of this character. In verse 8, he says it flat out. No man, no man can tame the tongue. It's beyond human control. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Is it impossible? Is there hope? Exactly. Because the scripture says that there is one that can control the tongue, doesn't it? Man cannot control the tongue, but there is one who can, and it is the spirit of the living God. When you lay your tongue on the sacrificial altar, when you lay your tongue on the altar of God, the spirit of God is able to take a blasphemous tongue and turn it into a tongue of praise, Monty. He is able to take a critical tongue and encourage it and turn it into a tongue of encouragement. He's able to take a gossiply and slanderous tongue and turn it into a tongue of blessing. No man can tame the tongue, but the spirit of God, he can, he can. The power of the tongue, I'm not picking on Monty, folks. I just mentioned the, the tongue of praise. Not that Monty needs to lay his tongue on the altar, although he probably does, like all of us. The tongue is so powerful, like the rudder on a ship, like the bit in a horse's mouth, like a spark that sets an entire forest aflame, but also it is perverted, and he says it's set on fire by the fires of hell itself, and no man, no man can control it. Thirdly, and we'll close with this, notice the paradox of the tongue. And this is really, really gets down home for you and me. The paradox of the tongue in verses 9 through 12. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. And James deals with the inconsistency or the paradox of the tongue. It is used in so many paradoxical ways, so many inconsistent ways. And he mentions these paradoxes. And he says these are impossible in the physical world. These things that we talk about that the tongue does, they're impossible in the physical world. He says a fountain in the physical world can't bring forth both fresh and bitter water. That's an impossibility. That's a physical impossibility. It can't both have fresh and bitter water coming out of the same spout. That's not possible. He says a fig tree cannot produce olives. That's a physical impossibility because you see the nature of the tree and the fruit are going to be corresponding to one another. They're going to be consistent with one another. In nature, it's impossible for it to be any other way. The fountain can't bring uh, fresh and bitter the olive tree can't produce figs. The fig tree can't produce olives. It's impossible in nature, yet he says that is the nature of the beast in the tongue. It's inconsistent. And what is impossible in the physical world, he says, is improper in the spiritual world. What is impossible in the physical world is improper in the spiritual world. It's improper, he says, for man to come into a place of worship or wherever he might be and to sing the praises of God 
to sing the praises of God and then to walk out of that place and curse his brother or sister in Christ who has been made in the image of God. James says that is inconsistent. That is a paradox. And it ought not, he says, it ought not to be that way. You know, the most powerful expression of the Spirit of God in a church is when there is no inconsistency in the use of the tongue within the body. That is, prob- that is the most powerful expression of the Spirit of God when there is no inconsistency in the use of the tongue within the body. When the tongue is not used to bless God and then to curse men, but the tongue is used to bless God and then turn around and be a blessing to men who are created in the image of God. But as James has already said, that is humanly impossible because no man, no man can tame the tongue. That's the paradox of the tongue, though. What is impossible in nature is improper in the spirit. But that oftentimes, James says, is what we have, an inconsistency, a paradox. But it ought not be. It ought not to be, he says. And the only way that it can ever be conquered, the only way that this thing of the tongue can ever be brought under control, ultimately, is the yielding of the human heart to the Spirit of God. It is the giving over in totality, in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment control to the Spirit of the living God over that life. Because you see, the Bible says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. When you and I speak, all we do is show what lives within. That's all we're doing. We're giving an outward picture of what is dwelling within the heart. Because Jesus says that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. What's in the heart, the mouth is going to speak. And so if the tongue is to be brought under control, it can only be done if the heart is, first of all, brought under control. Because, you see, what's in the well is going to show in the water. And what's in the root of the tree is going to show in the fruit of the tree. And it's only when the human heart has been brought under the lordship of Christ, has been brought under the domineering control moment by moment of the spirit of the living God that you and I ever begin to see any difference in the use of that two-inch piece of cartilage and muscle that dwells between our teeth, the tongue. As the bit controls the horse, and as the bit is in the horse's mouth, there's always one that is at the reins, isn't there? And as the rudder controls the direction of the ship, there is always one, though, that is at the wheel, turning the wheel. Who is it in your life? Is the question, the ultimate question. Who is it in your life? Who is it that's turning the wheel of the rudder in your life? Who is it that's pulling the reins with the, uh, uh, of the bit in the, in the mouth in your life? Is it self? Or is it the Spirit of God? James says, no man, no man can tame the tongue. An impossibility, humanly speaking. It is a spiritual, divine possibility, though. When that life is yielded to the Spirit of God, and when it is the Spirit of God that holds the reins on the bit, when it is the Spirit of God that turns the wheel in the pilot house that controls the rudder beneath that directs the ship, then... James says, it's possible. So the tongue 
the meanest member in our church, the meanest member of any church, the meanest individual on the face of the earth, James says, is powerful, is perverted, and is paradoxical. And the only answer, Scripture says, is to be born again. To be born again, to have that new nature. But even with the new nature in Christ Jesus, there must be that daily yielding, that daily laying of the heart and life on the sacrificial altar and saying, Spirit of the living God, fill me today. Spirit of the living God, control my tongue today. Lord, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. I'll not even attempt it today. You must do it for me and through me, yielded to the Spirit, the tongue. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's pray together.